all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Lieutenant Colonel James R. Dempsey, Jr., retired. Uh, Jim Dempsey's a friend of uh, us uh, here at Veterans Radio, and we're glad to have you on Veterans Radio, Jim. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I uh, enjoy the opportunity to uh, you know discuss issues related to uh, veteran activities, veteran benefits, and uh, something that I'm uh, very passionate about. You are passionate about it, which is why I've asked you to get on uh, today. And, and uh, you served in the military for 28-plus years, initially as a non-commissioned officer, um, and then you went back and uh, got a direct appointment as a second lieutenant in the Medical Service Corps of the United States Air Force. Uh, tell us just a you know, give us the thumbnail of your uh, military career. Sure. So uh, you know, I, uh, I I graduated from high school in 1970, and that was right at the you know kind of the peak of uh, things started winding down a little bit after that, but uh, peak of Vietnam, and I had no interest or desire to uh, have anything to do with uh, military or military service and. Uh, as it was, I went to college for uh, three years, got married, uh, continued going to school part-time, and uh, I don't know, my wife and I had a really good friend that had just gotten out of the Army, and both of us, uh, after having been married for about nine months, decided that we would venture into the, uh, the Army, into uh, career, uh, career fields that we were interested in, and uh, obtain the GI Bill. So that was our focus. That was at the at the very end of the. Uh, I was involved in I think the second to last draft that there was when I was 19. So uh, yeah, we we went into the military just uh, thinking it was going to be for a few years or three years, uh, get out, and that would be the end of it. But uh, with me, it uh, it ended up lasting uh, just a few months shy of 29 years. 
Well, and we should say that his better half, Jane, uh, who's a uh, retired VA oncology nurse, also did 22 years of service in the Army Nurse Corps. She may actually be the, you know, the better one to talk to, but, uh, you know, I didn't want Jim mad, so I started with him. Um, <laughs> so you had assignments, uh, you know, as, as most military folk do, kind of all over the country. Tell us a little bit about those assignments and, and the work that uh, you did. Sure. Uh, initial uh, basic training was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, uh, Jane and I left on the same day on the 9th of June back in 74 and went to uh, basic sheet of Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And uh, we did our eight weeks there. And uh, my first assignment was uh, uh, to go to Alaska. Uh, I went to Fort Richardson uh, in Anchorage and I was only there for two weeks and they transferred me north to Fairbanks at Fort Wainwright. I worked there as a 91G or 91 Golf. That was a social work psychology specialist. So I had had, uh, I was in, in a program called Stripes for Skills. I went into, entered the military as a uh, private first class E3. And eight weeks after basic training was promoted to uh, specialist four. And that was due to the uh, four years of college I had uh, prior to going in. So two years up in Alaska, one year at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, in Alaska, I worked in a uh, drug and alcohol uh, treatment program, uh, assisting veterans uh, with uh, substance abuse. And uh, that was two years up there, a year at Fort Hood. I worked uh, in a, uh, the area confinement facility. And again, I was working as a social worker as a liaison between the, uh, the prison guards there and the uh, service member that was incarcerated. So that was a year and then returned back to uh, finish my last year of college in, uh, in Albany, New York. And, and uh, along the way, you picked up your registered nursing uh, uh, degree and, and uh, registration, uh, I believe, out of New York, and you worked there as a psychiatric nurse for a period? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, you know, after I finished up my uh, two semesters uh, at uh, Albany State in New York, I, uh, I went to work uh, for a, uh, a couple of uh, organizations uh, and uh, made the, the realization that I, uh, I had a degree, I had experience, but uh, it wasn't necessarily aligning with the, uh, you know, a, a good wage. I decided uh, after a couple of years that uh, the nursing field would offer me an opportunity for commissioning in the uh, aeromedical evacuation unit that I was in with the uh, Air National Guard. I spent four years in the Army Guard in an ambulance company in uh, up in the Adirondacks in New York, and uh, I left a very nice job with them as their training NCO. It was an active duty position. But I decided in 81 to go back to school and seek a nursing program and uh, worked for the uh, state of Michigan, or excuse me, the state of New York uh, at the Capital District Psychiatric Center Adolescent Unit for a year and then uh, went into the, uh, to, to work with the Department of Corrections. So I worked uh, several years for them as a uh, psychiatric nurse. That was a very 
interesting job. But again, I was uh, again seeing Vietnam veterans. A lot of them had been incarcerated. A lot of it was due to PTSD, which hadn't even been coined uh, yet at that time. So it was a very, uh, very interesting position. And uh, I, uh, I had planned on getting commissioned as a nurse with the, uh, through the Air National Guard, but as it was just a few months before graduating from the nursing program, uh, I was offered the opportunity to uh, obtain a direct commission as a healthcare administrator. And I would be working as an operations officer in the air medical evacuation unit. So that seemed, uh, seemed enticing to me. I accepted the opportunity, and, uh, but I did continue to work. Uh, that was a part-time position in the Air National Guard. I continued to work as a uh, psychiatric nurse uh, in the uh, Comstock Correctional Facility which is right on the Vermont-New York border up near Whitehall, New York. One of the things that's interesting about uh, this career path, uh, Jim, that, that, and we're going to talk about being the first chief of aeromedical evacuation uh, for the National Guard Bureau, it, it's not a straight line, is it? I mean, it, it is a very jagged line, no. always kind of moving to the next opportunity and I think there's lessons there for people to learn that you never kind of know what that next opportunity is but you have to be ready and you have to be open for it don't you absolutely and I I can thank uh, there are key people during my military career that I can thank uh, one gentleman who was a flight nurse uh, his name was Bud Bouton and Bud was a nursing home administrator he was a nurse and as a second lieutenant, he took me under his wing. and He gave me some extremely good guidance about uh, seeking opportunities, being prepared, being ready to, uh, uh, you know, do a good job and uh, getting the training that was required and, uh, you know, being, being aggressive, but uh, also being uh, open and honest to, uh, you know, seek opportunities and he, uh, he gave me a lot of good uh, direction and guidance, and uh, I really appreciated that uh, at that time and for many years into my career. Well, as I said, you, you, you had those opportunities and you took them, not knowing where they'd lead next, do a great job, and then the next thing presents itself. And as I mentioned, uh, you were able to be the chief of aeromedical evacuation, um, and do formal school training for the National Guard Bureau and that in DC, and then that led to an appointment as the deputy director of the National Medical Readiness Training Site at Alpena, Michigan. Again, I'm sure that was an opportunity that wasn't on the radar until it was, and then it became a good opportunity. <laughs> well, and both of those positions were newly created positions. The the position at the Guard Bureau. It was something that I, I happened to see an announcement during a guard drill, and I was a first lieutenant at that time. And I had always, I had had good opportunities previously on active duty. I talked to my wife about it. She says, let's go ahead and apply for it if you're interested. We had a great experience uh, in Washington, D.C. in three years at Andrews. She worked as a, uh, a nurse off base uh, both of our, our two children went to school, elementary school, uh, on Andrews. And, uh, you know, we spent three years there, but then my son spent uh, 13 years in D.C. 
working with the Air Force Band. So he's he spent a lot more time, or as much, he's a lot more time than I did in D.C. He still uh, is serving right now uh, in Washington. Uh, he's a senior master sergeant, as I understand it. Correct. Uh, has been for about uh, about six years now. Yeah, yeah. He's with the uh, Air Force uh, Superintendent of Enlisted Developmental Education in D.C., so what a great uh, opportunity there. But I, I'm, I'm going to rush this a little bit because I want to get to the real reason I wanted Jim Dempsey on. It's not as much about the military career as about, and I think this is true for most of us, it's about what you do after you get out to pay it back to other veterans and to the military. And Jim, you've been actively involved with a lot of different veteran-centric programs and projects. Uh, uh, The one I want to focus on, and if we have time, i got a couple others I want to sneak in, but uh, you've been very active with the the DAV, the Disabled American Veterans. Um, Tell us about your involvement with the DAV. Yeah, it really started, uh, I did not join the DAV until a couple of years, uh, I think maybe a year to year and a half after I retired from active duty in 2002. Uh, I went to work uh, for the uh, Ann Arbor VA uh, Medical Center, and uh, I actually, is kind of an adjustment, I ended up taking, accepting a job working as a ward clerk, it was a GS4 position. And it's quite a change after, uh, you know, managing uh, 15 individuals and retiring as lieutenant colonel to jump back into a position like that. But I was told that that's the thing to do, uh, to get your foot in the door at the VA. I worked worked there for three years, and uh, I saw an announcement uh, for a veteran service officer for the DAV. And I decided uh, to put in for that. Uh, had no listing of, uh, you know, pay or benefits, uh, which were nominal. <clears throat> I ended up, uh, I ended up actually getting my pay cut in half and took that position for the DAV to work as a service officer. And between uh, 2010 and 2014, I wrote over 2,500 uh, claims. I was the only full-time service officer at the Ann Arbor VA and it was a passion that I had with 20 almost 29 years in the in the military working mental health working health care the entire time um, and I had been a previous VA employee I was poised at the right time right place at the right time to assist thousands of veterans in providing obtaining you know their health care benefits and uh, pension compensation and a variety of other uh, educational benefits for them I, I felt really that was my biggest payback was during that time and I, I learned a lot by uh, immersing myself and in getting involved with the uh, claims and that planted the roots for me to Uh, stay on with the DAV and assist them. The year after I retired as a state commander, I've been very active ever since. Every year I'm working my my third term as the uh, state treasurer. I just uh, last summer uh, completed my uh, sixth year serving on the National Executive Committee. 
And the main thing there is being the representative for Michigan and trying to be proactive on um, promoting DAV's uh, policy goals. Um, and this is predominantly in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the things I want to get across to folks is that your service organizations, and here we're spe- talking specifically about the DAV, um, helps you from all, all the way from the most basic level, as uh, Jim, you just mentioned, helping write up disability claims at a VA hospital and helping people with their benefits at that, at that ground level where the rubber meets the road, all the way up to D.C. where DAV and other VSOs are working on policy issues that need to be brought in front of Congress year after year after year to try to get uh, the appropriate changes for our veterans. And having spent six years on the DAV National Executive Committee, I suspect you saw that effort and, and saw some wins you'd like to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the biggest things that uh, I can think of is the uh, recent uh, uh, passage of the uh, PACT Act. And, uh, you know, that addresses the uh, gaps that the, the uh, VA has had in providing uh, uh, coverage or military compensation to veterans who served in uh, toxic uh, exposure uh, laden areas all around the country, whether they be at Camp Lejeune or overseas uh, in uh, burn pits, uh, you know, in in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, they had them also in Vietnam, but there's a variety of different uh, toxic toxic exposures uh, that individuals have had with the uh, firefighting foam uh, that's used all over the world or was used. So that, uh, that particular, the PACT Act was one that, uh, I think, you know, they, they started discussing this, uh, probably about the time I was, I went to work for the VA in 2010. So here it is 13 years later, and it's finally just now, uh, now that it's recently passed, uh, last year, it's it's time for it to be implemented over the next few years. So we we monitor that, watch, and uh, that's probably one of the one of the biggest uh, yeah, ones a, yeah, that uh, you know comes to mind because that's it, it's comprehensive for a lot of veterans were never provided uh, the opportunity to have success in uh, pursuing their claims yeah it really was huge and it's uh, still just beginning to be implemented not only for burn pits but guys exposed to agent orange in countries that previously weren't accepted this whole concept of toxic exposure at bases is is got more work that needs to be done legislatively um, anybody in the military knows you're exposed to a lot of chemicals a lot of different stuff you don't think about when you're 18 or 22 years old, right? Uh, for, you're, mm-hmm. a, you're a healthcare professional. You, you, even now, you'd probably look back and say, well, I didn't think about that when I was 25. Um, right. So there, it's, the, it's these veteran service organizations that bring the, the attention to this matter, these kind of matters, to Congress. A lot of people think or, VSO organizations like uh, DAV, 
Jim, are, are dinosaurs of the past, uh, that, that the, the membership is dwindling, the posts are closing. What, what do you see as the vision of the future uh, for organizations like the DAV? Well, you know, our, our organization is, has a, a very laser-focused mission and uh, one of the things they developed was something called Operation Keep the Promise. Well, Keep the Promise is, is promises that were made to veterans when they joined the military of benefits that they would have or be available to them. And a lot of these benefits, uh, you know, have eroded or the benefits are there, but they're not funded properly. And... Uh, I, I see the future of uh, several veteran service organizations potentially uh, consolidating or getting together, and they do that now. They, uh, they, they get to several organizations, uh, put their forces together, and they fight a lot of these uh, missions uh, in a unified fashion, like the VFW, American Legion, the DAV, or the, you know, some of the big three. But uh, it's difficult to know what's going to happen with the Vietnam Veterans of America. I am a member of that organization. It is a dying organization, a dying breed because of the way their charter was written. And they've discussed changing it and modifying it, but I don't think that's going to happen. So you had to serve during Vietnam, during the 62 to uh, May of 75 uh, time frame to be a member. Well, a lot of these people have gone. Uh, I think in the, in the future, the, the, the chapters uh, are consolidating. It's getting smaller and smaller. Michigan, 20 years ago, had over 50,000 members in the DAV. Today, it's 23,000. And we're not getting a lot of the younger members. Uh, people want to do things online. They want to do uh, things virtually. And uh, I really don't know what the, the answer is, but uh, I think that the, all these organizations will remain fairly strong on the legislative aspect and at the national and the state level. But uh, I think you're gonna, we're going to see a lot more consolidation we see chapters merging uh, neighboring um, communities and neighboring uh, uh, counties are uh, joining forces. And uh, it's not a good thing, but uh, it doesn't look extremely bright for, you know, expansion of, of programs. Well, as you said, the, the, the focus on the legislative side to, to making sure their promises are kept. Uh, I think there'll always be a need for strong veteran service organizations, maybe in a different format, but but certainly that need exists. Uh, you're a past commander for the, the, the DAV for the Department of Michigan. Um, you currently serve, uh, I believe, as chairman of the Board of Trustees to the Michigan Veteran Trust Fund. Can you tell us what that does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the basic, basic mission of the uh, uh, trust fund, which celebrated its 75th anniversary uh, just this last year, was uh, formed in a public act of uh, 1946, public act number nine, uh, February 25th and 46, the uh, state of Michigan established the Veterans Trust Fund. 
and its board of trustees. And the main purpose of it is one of the one of the primary purposes is to uh, administer the emergency grant program uh, for the Michigan's Veterans Trust Fund. So it provides financial grants to honorably discharge wartime era veterans and their dependents uh, that have unforeseen short-term emergent needs. And uh, we are, I, I received a phone call today from uh, Lindell Holm, who's the director of the trust fund, stating that the state is very interested in providing additional funds to us to expand this uh, emergency grant program to peacetime veterans. So that would be the 1975 to 1990 uh, people that serve only during that time so that we can provide assistance to not just the wartime veterans, but to all veterans in the state of Michigan. Well, I think that's one of the frustrating things. Uh, the public certainly doesn't understand it, and I think it's frustrating to veterans when they've got to, well, am I, am I really a veteran if I was just in the Guard or Reserve or just active duty, or what, what period of time did I serve? Do I overlap as a, a wartime or a peacetime or a... Uh, you know, a veteran. There, there's a lot of uh, nuances to the rules, so any expansion like the one you just mentioned, I think, is good because those were promises made. Hey, when you signed up, you didn't know where you were going to get sent or what what was going to happen. So uh, that's that's a great uh, uh, a great role as chairman of the board of trustees for the Michigan Veterans Trust Fund, which I think is pretty robustly funded at this point. So there's a, a lot of opportunity to help and uh, probably no shortage of need. Um, there's one other thing I want to try to touch on before we run out of time because I, I wanted to talk to Jim about this. Uh, every, every ski season, I think, oh, i got to talk to Jim Dempsey about this. And, <laughs> and the ski season in Michigan can be pretty short. Um, and, you know, if the, the weather doesn't cooperate, you don't get a lot of snow. We're not Colorado. So um, Jim is an avid skier uh, as well as an avid golfer. But um, as an avid skier, you've been involved with adaptive sports and been involved in getting veterans on a ski slope. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, I, uh, you know, once, once I uh, retired, uh, when I turned 62 there, about nine years ago, I uh, I was going to work and uh, right up until the early part of the spring when golf season started. But I decided that I would retire in uh, at the beginning of ski season uh, around the first of December. I started skiing at Mount Brighton, and every once in a while, I would see uh, see some individuals there that were. Uh, were either, you know, had partial paralysis or they had some uh, significant uh, health deficits that did not allow them to ski in a normal fashion. They have uh, adaptive equipment uh, for a lot of individuals that were missing a limb or an arm. And I talked to some of those folks and they said, yeah, we're really, uh, we're really looking for people who can assist us in uh, teaching this. I said, well, I used to be a certified ski instructor in New York uh, back in the uh, 70s uh, through the 90s. So I got involved as a volunteer and uh, just finished up my uh, fifth year with them. And uh, it's an extremely rewarding program to be able to bring uh, individuals and veterans, uh, especially veterans, out uh, to the uh, ski slopes and give them an opportunity 
to share some fresh air and possibly a new sport or even returning to a sport that they haven't done for a number of years. And the Michigan uh, DAV uh, provided a grant to the Mount Brighton Adaptive Ski Program for $8,000 this past year to purchase some uh, specialty equipment uh, for veterans to utilize. And we've served over uh, 50 veterans in the last, uh, last couple of years. They used to have an active veteran skiing program and uh, that disappeared when the ownership was uh, changed over about seven years ago. But it's something that's being resurrected and uh, you know, we're, like you said, the weather has not been the best and this was probably one of the worst winters we've had in, in a number of years. But fortunately they have good snowmaking capabilities up there. So when there's no snow around, Hopefully, there might be a foot on the mountain. Well, it's a great uh, thing to bring veterans back to, and, and I think almost every ski resort probably uh, in the country has some adaptive skiing uh, programs, and, and there are, are veteran-centric ones, and that's uh, part of what Jim Dempsey has been involved in. As I say, every year I think, I want to talk about this, but then I look up and the weather's uh, kind of moved on. So I'm glad we can sneak this in at the end. Jim, I, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with Veterans Radio today to talk about the DAV, talk about your military career, and just uh, kind of the ways in which, if you if you look around, there are a lot of opportunities to continue to serve the military and the veterans, and you've certainly taken taken hold of many of them. So thanks thanks for doing that, and thanks for spending some time with us. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, I'd like to give a uh, give a shout out to another program that's uh, kind of starting at this time of the year. It's called the. Uh, the PGA HOPE program. And the HOPE program is something that's administered for, uh, specifically for disabled veterans, whether it be physical or mental. There's uh, three or four places around the state of Michigan that are gonna be offering free equipment and golf lessons to veterans. Uh, I think uh, Fox Hills in uh, Southeast Michigan is one of those. And also there's a organization called the Veterans Golf Association, which has a chapter in Michigan. That's another uh, excellent opportunity for veterans that may be uh, disabled or handicapped that they can also participate uh, on an equal basis. But thanks for uh, inviting me today, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Jim. We're glad, glad to do it. And as I mentioned earlier, he's an avid skier and avid golfer, and you, he just got to plug in for the two golf uh, groups that he's uh, hel helping promote for veterans. So that's great. PGA Hope Program and Veterans Golf Association. Jim, thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to veteransradio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800.
We would again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed. <laughs>